This morning we're in uh, Revelation 8 and 9. We're not going to read all of both chapters. Just going to read a couple of selections as we've done previously. You can go back and fill in the gaps. We'll start at verse 7 and read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll jump towards the second half of chapter 9. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and those were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, starting in verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that we, your people, would be defined by that word. So, Father, we ask that you'd give us eyes to read truly and ears to hear rightly. Pray that our hearts would be soft. We pray, God, that you would speak to us and give us life by this good word of yours. We might live wholeheartedly for you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
This, uh, this starts in the book of Revelation, another cycle of, of seven things, and this will not be the last time. This is the second cycle of sevens. The first one was seven scrolls, as the scroll that the Lamb was worthy to read is, is cracked open. And this, after the cracking open of those seals, is this announcement with trumpets and judgments that accompany, accompany these, these trumpets. Uh, the first four move quite quickly. There's only a couple verses ascribed to them, and then five and six, uh, the sixth of which we just read, are, are longer. And the seventh is this other episode that is indeed longer still. So we're going to carry on into these trumpet blasts uh, into next week. Um, and this week, uh, you can see the sort of catastrophic nature of what's announced by these trumpets how the angels put their lips to the trumpets and, and blow in these horrible things. You can hear a third of the earth. Generally, a third of everything is, is erupting in flames or being darkened or being poisoned. It's just mass, almost, it seems like chaos. It seems like chaotic warfare all over the earth that John is seeing. And you can see, too, these various components of these other things rushing in. The fifth trumpet that we did not read is this weird uh, unleashing of this combination of these locusts and scorpion beings uh, that are in the fifth trumpet. And um, if you grew up in evangelicalism like I did, you probably led the Left, left Behind books. Um, you know, this is where the Left Behind books really struggle to not read this metaphorically. So. Uh, a lot of times the stories would revolve around something like a nuclear explosion happening, and that's this thing or whatever. But when you get to these sort of demon locust scorpion things, the, the book is just about demon locust scorpions that ride around and stab people with their tails. Um, and that's kind of the, the vibe of it. And the fifth and sixth trumpet is these horrible unleashing uh, of powerful forces. And it's very clear that these are satanic forces. These are, this is from hell. Uh, and names it in Greek and, and Hebrew. These are the powers of hell unleashed uh, on the earth. And uh, there is, there is a, a sense in which we could sit here and, and parse through every one uh, of these images and try to discern where in history John was referring to. And, and, and oftentimes, this is exactly what the church does. You can read histories of commentary on the book of Revelation, and uh, it's it's always people, when they read the book of Revelation, they always assume, this is about me, and this in my day is, this, this person in my day is who they were talking about. Um, and so you can see various interpretations. One, one thing that the, is common through this, though, is that uh, we're not really talking about literal demon locust scorpions unleashed on the earth. We're really talking about what's the power of false teaching unleashed on the earth. Consistently throughout history, you have interpreters who are saying this is obviously the, the power of heresy. It's living water that's been contaminated by the devil, as was we can see in the trumpet of, of, this, of wormwood falling and making clean water bitter. It's these things that plague people. It's these things that stab and poison people and destroy them, and clearly comes from hell is this power of false teaching. But I, I think it's what caught my eye and caught my heart as I watched this sort of scenery unfold um, 
is a couple things that I, I want to point to you. Because this is the second time this language has popped up in the book of Revelation. In verse 14 uh, of chapter 9, the trumpet is, is blown, the sixth trumpet, and it says, Release the four angels who are bound to the great rivers. And uh, before, there are angels who are holding back the winds of judgment, and what's being told them is, is those winds are supposed to be released. And the same imagery uh, is also being used here. Release, uh, release what they've been holding back or what they've been bound to. And that's, uh, I think, quite important uh, for understanding the, the theme, the central theme of these scrolls being broken open, the seals being broken, the trumpets being blown, and the, what, what will be bowls being poured out, is that God is here in judgment, uh, releasing what has been held back. And God is in judgment, allowing the powers of hell to act and to inflict damage on people. And that is, if you come to the book of Revelation and, and are not paying attention to the whole of Scripture, it is deeply disturbing, all these things that are happening. And what becomes difficult, especially if you read, read kind of like the novelizations of the book of Revelation that I did when I, I was younger, uh, if you're sort of just running across the surface of the prose, uh, it, it just feels terrifying. This is these mass judgments poured out on the earth. And if you'll notice, kind of the language of the trumpets is, is not that only bad people have these things happen to them. It's the whole earth. It's all of the green grass that's, that's burned up in one of the trumpets. It's, it's a third of everything that is burned up. It's the third of the stars. It's, it's global cat catastrophe. It's catastrophic. And so it feels, the narrative of it feels terrifying when God blows his trumpets and brings judgment. And, and to be fair, fear is not an uncommon reaction to an appearance or a revelation of God. Uh, and there's a number of examples I can give you of that, but the, probably the most helpful is another prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah. And if you know the story of, of Isaiah's call, uh, Isaiah also has a, a pretty striking vision of God on his throne. And we know that John uses some of the imagery from Isaiah to, to describe what he's seeing. But this is what Isaiah says in his call in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There's smoke in Revelations 8 and chapter 9, but it is the smoke and the sulfur burning of the forces of hell. It's the sort of counter temple to the smoke-filled temple of God. And I said, this is Isaiah's response, Woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King 
the Lord of hosts. And this is relatively similar to Ezekiel's response as well. Ezekiel has a book full of crazy visions. He sees the glory of God similarly in spectacular, strange fashion. And Ezekiel says that his response is that he sees everything and he falls down like a dead person because he's just terrified. And there's a reason why when, when messengers from God in Scripture come to his people, their first word is, don't be afraid, because they're afraid. The response is instantaneous fear. And all the more so when we open the Scriptures and hear God is in the business of judging. And it would be tempting to say, well, that's not, that's not very nice, and that's all in the Old Testament, and God doesn't do that anymore. But if you take up the Scriptures and you, and you spend a lot of time reading the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus himself utters some quite strange and scary words. And I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I am going to read some of them to you so that you can hear what I'm saying, that Jesus himself will deliver some part of this message. In Matthew chapter 13, he's told the story of the wheat and the, and the weeds growing up together and how one day those wheat and weeds will be separated. And he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In my Bible, these are red words. These are Jesus' words. He jumps down in the parable of the dragnet. It says, uh, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them out into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter two, uh, 22, Jesus tells another story about the nature of the kingdom. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And finally, in Matthew chapter 25, and again, these are not all the examples. Notice, I'm only reading from one gospel, and I'm not reading all the stories in the one gospel. Verse 41, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Then you'll, he will answer them saying, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, as, as, a, as a Protestant uh, Christian, I'm pretty pro-Bible. Uh, I think the Bible is great. Everybody should own one, and everybody should read it. 
And if you pick up your Bible and you read it front to back, whether that takes you three months or a year or 20, if you're on the 20-year Bible reading plan, whatever, read it, you will come to these passages. You will come to these stories. You will come to Revelation 8 and 9 when the trumpets are being blown and there's smoke and fire and hail and there is judgment. There's judgment being unleashed on the earth. And it's, it is troubling. It is deeply troubling. And what's, what's comforting here is that I don't have to say to you that this is not troubling. Is that the scriptures themselves, the people of God, the prophets of God, will also say, yeah, this is scary. This is quite scary. And what are we to do with that? At the very end of Revelation chapter 9, the conclusion of the sixth trumpet says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping the demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor, they, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The conclusion of this, this sixth trumpet is that they did not repent. And when Jesus is giving these warnings of the end of the age, he's telling these parables, the message that he's giving is quite clear. It is one to, to repentance. When the prophets will speak their word of judgment, the word that they are speaking is repent. The scriptures never... Uh, give a word of judgment without also giving an invitation, a call to repentance. But it is very important that you hear that call to repentance according to the right tune. And it is important that you see these visions of judgment in the right lens and according to the right tone. God wants you to repent. He wants me to repent. Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, you know, he's quite famous for knocking some things on a door, nailing it to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. There were 95 items for academic disputation. He's provoking an academic fight with the church of his day to try to correct some misteaching. The first thing that he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That was his first thesis. In Martin Luther's day, the, the church had fallen in to uh, a way of fundraising that played upon people's ignorance of God and their absolute fear of Him. And they read this scripture. It was a translation issue. And they heard that they are called to penance, to do penance, which was acts to atone for, to cover up for their acts of evil. And Martin Luther was saying, this is a mistranslation. It does not say do penance. It calls you to repent. 
And there's a difference in the Roman Catholic Church, the church at the time, was saying that to do penance, you must do A, B, and C things. And oh, by the way, we're building a really big cathedral in Rome, so it would be quite helpful for you and your acts of penance if you would give some money here. And the people that heard them, often poor people, uneducated people with no access to Scripture who had grown increasingly disconnected from the story of Scripture were terrified that God would keep them in purgatory or even worse, in hell. And so they gave what they had. And there is this very effective method of leveraging their fear for the profit of the church. And this is Martin Luther's chief complaint against the Roman Catholic Church, the church, is that they are building their cathedrals on the backs of terrified peasants. And unfortunately, though we tend to, I, I hope we've never run a building campaign on the backs uh, of a fear like that, but the core of that problem persists for all ages. Because people are by nature afraid of God. And they are afraid that they must do enough to escape His wrath. Now, there is some kernel of truth to what the German peasants have believed and what you and I by nature believe. That God does truly see me. And all the things that I have hidden from you, He has seen. And if he is terrifyingly holy as Isaiah saw and as Ezekiel saw, as John saw, surely, surely he is furious with me. And there is some truth to that. That God is terrifyingly holy. And the things that we have hidden in the darkness of our hearts are repugnant to him. What I'd say to you that is true about that in some small slice of it is that God is furious at sin. He hates it. However, He is furious at sin because of what it does to His people. He is furious with your sin of greed because it deceives you into thinking that you don't need him. He despises the sin of sexual immorality because it ensnares you to your own desires and clouds your affections for him. He hates your pride because that pride will drive you into the insanity of self-worship that will never, ever fulfill you. It's like drinking salt water when you are dying of thirst. And when, when the people of the world look at the suffering of the world, the suffering of the innocent, the same things that infuriate you, 
infuriate God. And God will speak diagnostically and say, that is because of sin. So when you look at the world and you say, how can God be good if systems of the world ensnare and punish and break apart the powerful? God is saying with you, it is wrong. He is furious at it. He hates sin, despises it. And his pledge is that he will crush it. He will not let that sin go. It is a mistake that people make that when they think about how God might judge them, that they say, maybe God will just wave a wand and pretend like this never happened. And everybody's fine with that when they look at themselves. But when you look out at the world and the way that sin has been done to those people or those people or those people by somebody else's sin, nobody is fine with a God that just waves a wand and said, it doesn't matter. I'll just forgive that one. The people who are in prison for rape and child abuse, nobody is gathered around the wreckage of those sins and saying, God should just forget this one. What they mean when they say that is, God should just forget mine. But nobody is satisfied with a God who is not furious with sin. And you should not be satisfied with a God who is not furious with sin. But that is not the whole picture. It is often the picture that I view God's call to repentance on my life. My habit, my default is to view God as angrily inviting me to repentance. What I, what I often hear in God's call to repentance for me is that God is so annoyed with me that I should feel some extended moments of shame and regret for what I've done. And though God might spare his angry hand from me, he at least wants me to feel just a little bit of shame for what I've done. Because what I believe in my heart is that God, what he wants most is to bring his wrath on me. That is the natural default of my heart that I must somehow convince God to delay his judgment on me, that I can somehow, if I, if I can't resolve his anger, that I could somehow earn my way into a sort of value-neutral, emotional-neutral state for me. And that is not what God is calling you to. When God calls people to repent, as he calls me and as he calls you, he's calling you because he loves you. He's not looking to emotionally flagellate you and to ask you to sip on a little bit of the cup of condemnation. 
He is looking at the sin that he hates and despises and destroys his creation. And he's saying, stop drinking poison. I love you. Stop doing this to yourself. Stop going to that well of darkness and destruction and sulfur flying into the clouds and Wormwood's bitter waters. Stop going there. Go the other way. I love you. There is a piece of of writing on on repentance that I I was reading this morning. Uh, There was a a bishop in in Milan 1,700 years ago. Uh, by the name of Ambrose. Ambrose's preaching is, is part of what God used to convert Augustine, St. Augustine. He's this brilliant man who became a bishop kind of against his will. And in the, the early church in the 200s, there's this heresy uh, called the Novatians. Um, the Novatians believed that, that they needed to preserve the purity of communion. And that there were just some sins that were unforgivable and forever disconnected you from the church. They're thinking back to the the days of of Roman persecution under the emperor Decius when people, Christians, became afraid. They renounced their faith. And then afterwards, after persecution was over, they felt sorry and they repented. And the church said at large, their repentance is genuine, and God restores them to the life of the church. But the Novatians were saying, not for that one. No way. You don't get to come back and take communion for that. Communion must be pure, and they are impure. They cannot come to the table. And Ambrose is writing against the Novatians on repentance. His argument to them is that it is apparent in all of Scripture, it is apparent in the Gospels that God is disposed to mercy, not severity. The inclination of God's heart is towards mercy. What He wants to do most is to give mercy, and their teachings undermine it. And He said, in this plea for repentance, He waits for our lamentations here that is in time, that He may spare us that which shall be eternal. He waits for our tears that He may pour forth His goodness. The tragedy of Revelation chapter 9, the tragedy of our whole lives, is that we hear the call to repentance And we hear a God who is angry, that we are reluctant to repent because we are worried that God is really, what He really just needs is to kick the dog. That's what He needs. And maybe I'm the dog in the room. So if I'm going to move towards repentance, I'm going to creep towards it. I'm going to edge into it. I'm going to just kind of edge into the room and hope that God doesn't see me and He doesn't yell at me. And what Ambrose is saying What God wants is to pour out His goodness. 
He wants you to turn. He wants to turn you to turn even from the very worst of sins, from the sins of idolatry and murder and theft and sexual immorality, as, Rome, as Revelation 9 speaks of. He wants you to turn away from him so he can pour out his goodness. God is not interested in flexing his muscles in might so that he might crush you. If that's what really God wanted in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, if that's what God wanted in all of Scripture, He would have done it ages ago. He's never lacked the power. But it is not that display of power over your sin that He chooses. It is the cross that He chooses. God has spread out His arms to beckon His people into repentance. And He has not done it with His arms bared to show His might. He has embraced the crucifixion that you might see Him split open. It is His power over sin that allows Him to drink the gall, the bitter water at Golgotha, so that you don't drink it. It is His back that takes the whip, so that you don't take it. It is He that embraces death, your death, so that you can hear His voice calling you to repentance, so that you don't have to live under the heavens that are falling down in judgment. He has cast His body on top of His people to spare them the bitter and fiery reality that we have called on ourselves. When Martin Luther says this thing that the whole Christian life is one of repentance, he's not saying the Christian life is a condemnation to misery. He's saying it is an invitation to freedom. That Jesus wants you to repent because He wants to free you. And in the moment when you can finally throw your arms open and say, Father, I have sinned. It is not a moment of shame. It is not a a moment of disappointment. It is a moment when the pleasure of God is poured out on you. It is a moment when God can put His foot on the neck of the enemy in your life and He can say to you what He said to the people who were assembled, this is my beloved child. This is the one who was lost, but now is found. As Ambrose wrote, it is Jesus who is the good shepherd that picks up the weak lamb and puts it on his shoulders and carries him home. If you are sick this morning, if you are sin sick, if you are laboring under all of these things that Revelation 9 has listed and so much more, Jesus has spoken the word to you. It is for the sick that I have come. It is for the lost that I have come. It is for the rejected that I have come. It is for the outcast and those cast in the darkness and the hopelessness of your sin. It is for them that I have come. It is not that you should fear His judgment. It is that He is trying to show you the judgment that He is rescuing you from. Sin has sharp teeth. Sin is the enemy. And God is your ally. When you read the whole of Scripture, 
You are not meant to see God as your enemy. He is your ally. He is your friend. He is the one who will deliver you. And he does not ask you to deliver yourself. He is not waiting for you to feel the appropriate level of shame. He is not waiting for you to self-flagellate enough, to punish yourself enough, to have enough bad consequences. Then I will accept you. That is not God. That is me. That is you. And God is better than you. And God is better than me. If you are ensnared in sin this morning, the whole message of the gospel is repent. Come home. Stop killing yourself this way. The Son of God allowed Himself to be killed by your sin for you because He loves you. The call of repentance is that of a loving Father who decided to conquer sin by letting your sin consume him, that you might be delivered into his life. God is not here to trade with you. He is not here to see that you would be good enough for him. He is not waiting for you to give him enough emotional currency. It is all gift And so when Martin Luther says, when all of Scripture says, when Jesus says that His people are repenting people, it does not mean we are a sorrowful people. It means we are a joyful people that we never have to wonder again what verdict might God render over me. The verdict has been rendered. It is finished, Jesus says. It is finished. And in his own resurrection is the vindication of that judgment and the destiny of my whole life. That even the powers of hell, these locust scorpions swarming out of the very pit of hell, do not have right over me any longer. It is the resurrected Lord Jesus who has grabbed my own life by the scruff of the neck and taken it through the grave and into his own life. Repent in joy. If you are here this morning and you have never turned around to Jesus, his disposition towards you is this. Do not be afraid of Him. He stands before you in love. And though He is terrifyingly holy, He has gotten down on His hands and knees and whispered so that you might hear Him. He loves you. Come home. If you cannot come home, and you cannot, He will pick you up on His very strong shoulders and He will carry you home. And he will never stop. If you are a Christian today and you have been trapped in sin, habitual sin that you just cannot stop, you've said you're sorry so many times and you're just so embarrassed to repent again and you're so ashamed to repent again and you just don't know if you can tell God one more time. You're not telling him anything he didn't know. 
You are not hiding anything from him. He's always seen you as you are. You've always been the sick one. You've always been the weak one. You've always been the outcast. And it's to you that he has pointed his finger and said, I want you to be my son or my daughter. And when you repent again, it is your proclamation of his love for you. And his attitude towards you is sure. He is delighted to welcome you home. He wants your repentance because he wants to pour out his goodness on you. Christian, repent. Repent today. Repent at the end of today. Repent tomorrow morning and at the end of the day and every point in between. And the message of the gospel is still the same. Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough. He's rescued me. He's rescued me. He's rescued me. But I don't, the things that I've added to the list from here to there, it doesn't matter. He's victorious. He's the king. He's the lamb that was slain. He is the one who is worthy to open up the scrolls. He is the one who is sitting on the throne who's sovereign over the judgments and has brought the judgment on him that you might be delivered and hell might be ripped to pieces and that you might live with him forever. People of God, we are meant to be a repenting people and to enjoy God forever. He will have his victory in the whole world, and in my life, and in yours. This is the grace-filled good news, the good word of what Jesus has done. He is Lord, He is Master, He is Father, He is Friend, and He has given you His favor. Repent and come home to Him again. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are worthy of every part of our lives. We have given our lives over to the powers of sin and hell and death. We have brought the heavens down on ourselves. And it is so shameful to see how we have played with sin. And we are tempted to compound our sin and think that what you want for us is condemnation. But it is a good word. It is the good word. That you desire the salvation of your people. That is for love you spread your arms out before the whole world and offered a kind of life that cannot be conquered by sin or death. Father, I pray for those who are laboring under falsehoods about you, who, who might might believe this whole thing for everybody except them. And I pray, Father, that you would silence the voice of the accuser and you would instead render the verdict given at the cross and vindicated in the resurrection, that it is finished, 
and every accusation is rendered null. Father, I pray that the good word of the gospel would be delivered, that the God who by all appearances we should be terrified of has loved us extravagantly. And he longs for our repentance, for our good. I pray that you would help us to see the cross afresh this morning. That you would help us to hear the hope that is in judgment, that you are simultaneously the God who refuses to let sin have its say or refuses to let sin just pass by through the world and that you have found a way to deliver us from the teeth of sin or the terrors of judgment. There is no one like you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would win our hearts today and tomorrow and every other day that we would never stop hearing the freshness of the gospel, the outrageousness of the invitation. Father, I pray that for those who are in this room who have never actually repented and turned to follow you, I pray that today you would point their feet toward them and they would run to the Father who's looked down the path waiting for them to come home. I pray that they would feel you picking them up and putting them on your shoulders. And Father, for those who have repented to you a thousand times, a million times, ceaselessly, that they would hear the assurance of the gospel that Jesus has done it. Their success does not determine your response. It is the success of Jesus that guarantees your victory over their sin. I pray that they would feel relieved and released and loved so that they would freely repent and come to you, God. Father, I thank you for being so persistent with us. May our hearts be open and soft before you. Help us to be ever quicker to repent, to live a life of repentance, standing out beneath your cross, having your goodness poured on us again and again and again. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We cannot thank you enough, but we thank you. Let our whole life be one of gratitude. Amen.